works. Hello, folks. This is the American Association of Food Safety, Public Health Veterinarian YouTube channel and podcast. We're on season one, episode nine. And today I'd like to welcome Dr. Arnold Goldman. He goes by Arnie for his friends, of which we all are. And he has his master's in public health, uh, uh, along with some other very interesting designations that we'll go through as we start in. So first of all, I like to always ask where you are located. Tell us where you're at right now, Arnie. I am uh, in my own office, which is in my clinic. Mm -hmm. and that clinic is in Canton, Connecticut. It's a central, central Connecticut, semi-rural oh. or suburban okay. area. Yeah, so I, I want to point out to everyone, you're, you're practicing medicine. And, I, and I, I can see here that you graduated from veterinary school right about the same time I did. So you've been in clinical medicine the whole time since you've been out? I have. It's coming up on 35 years, I hate to say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in, I like to also start with understanding what brought you to veterinary medicine in the very beginning when you started thinking about being a veterinarian. Tell me a little bit about your, let's call it origin story. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, well, I mean, if you really want to go back. Um, mm -hmm. So I grew, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. It's mm -hmm. uh, at the time it was a uh, semi-suburban or ex-urban community, semi-rural in some respects, very urban in others. And uh, uh, I was an only child adopted by my parents as a baby. And my parents uh, were very uh, empathic towards animals. You know, my, my dad and my mom both uh, loved animals. Now we were, I, I don't wanna say poor, but we were pretty modest means. Uh, you know, I didn't actually have a dog or a cat till I was already in my late teens, almost mm -hmm. going to college. It just wasn't an expense we could manage. But other pets, other pets I had, you know, mm -hmm. and so that was my exposure. And my dad was uh, a guy who he would try to fix birds that he'd find that were injured and that sort of thing. And so I was exposed to that feeling early on in life. And then I had many friends, of course, and many of them had pets. And so my interactions with animals encompass that and then there was a place in upstate new york back in the day called catskill game farm and my various family members would bring me up there and it was basically a domestic animal petting zoo at mm -hmm. that time before a lot of regulation and really a lot of awareness of public health issues that go along with that and so i went there many many times and then uh many of my family members my parents and my extended grandparents and all uh, would take me to all the zoos in the area. So in New York, we had the Staten Island Zoo, which I would probably have been at, you know, monthly during my entire childhood. And then uh, the uh, the Bronx Zoo, and then there's in Brooklyn, the Prospect Park Zoo. So I was very familiar with all of those places. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of cultural things in New York, as you know, uh, museums and such. So I had an interest in science. I had an interest in animals from a very early age. And uh, that kind of led me uh, along. I, I didn't know that I would want to be a veterinarian at, uh, even in, into college because I'd never really met a veterinarian. Uh, oh, of course, if you didn't have a dog or cat, sure. Right. And then- right. the animals I had were frogs and hamsters and yeah. various snakes and such. And, uh, but I had the feeling for it. And then 
Uh, I, I, I majored in biology at, a, at one of the uh, State University of New York uh, campuses at a, at a place called New Paltz. It's near Poughkeepsie, New York. And uh, I was near the end of, of, well, I was already into my third year, like junior year of college, mm -hmm. you know, well along in a, in a biology major. And I needed like an extra credit uh, for, for a given semester. And there was a local veterinarian who offered a class that was called uh, Pets Care and First Aid. Oh, and, so and I, that was right up your alley because your dad was there taking care of whatever injured creatures came, showed up. So, yeah, okay. Exactly. So I, I, so I, I needed this one credit. I didn't want to, you know, take some sociology or some other thing that really I, I wasn't really interested in. So I took this class and part of the class was going to the veterinarian's practice and observing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was hooked like almost instantaneously. He had a younger associate who was closer in age to me, you know, maybe he was less than 10 years apart. We kind of hit it off and I kept going back. Uh, and that one thing led to another. So, you know, of course I got an A in this. It was a, it was a class for non-science majors, a science mm -hmm. class for non-science majors, but I just took it to fill my, my schedule that particular semester. And I just kept going back and, uh, you know, I started thinking about veterinary school, and at the time there were 18 schools in the United States. I came up with a book, uh, and that was a it was a hardcover book. It, it was right. Called, I totally get the line. You know, book, veterinary yes. colleges of the world. I still have right. it. Really. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, so that led me to that, and yeah. and then the next step was I, I, you know, I started looking at what was required to get into veterinary school, and of course at that time. Uh, it was it was sort of understood that if you were from a state that had a veterinary school, you yes. were expected to apply to that school. Uh, oh, 100 percent. There was very little choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. The Western states uh, had different relationships, but I was from New York. So that was Cornell, an excellent school. At the time, they took 60 students a year. Um, they took oh, 30 yeah. men, 30 men and 30 women. So that start cutting the numbers down and then they took a small number from new york city and then everybody else from the upstate region and so when you started you know doing the math you know my gpa at the time was not a gpa that was going to get me into say one of the dozen or so slots reserved for male applicants from new york city it just wasn't going to happen sure yeah so I, I did some additional work after undergrad uh, and I ended up in a master's program at the University of Florida. Oh, that's and how you got your master's. Okay, sure. First master's, yeah. Uh, oh, okay. It's kind of a, a funny story. Uh, there was a professor at Florida called, his name was Dallas Hyde. He started out, he was a pulmonary uh, researcher. He started out at UC Davis. And for some reason, somehow he ended up in his professional career at uh, the University of Florida, where he partnered with Daryl Buss. You may know that name because he was a, a dean at Wisconsin and a dean at Florida subsequently. But in any case, so Dallas agrees to take me on as a graduate student. Uh -huh. this, this is 1979. We're in a gas crisis, okay? And I've, I've never really been outside of New England in my whole, never been on a commercial airliner in my life. Uh, so I, I had a pickup truck. I loaded up all my possessions. And I, I, my father and I rigged up a spare gas tank, and I would uh, so in the in the bed of the truck, so I could get to Gainesville without having to find gas along the way, because no That's one true. knew if you could. Right. And I made it. I made it from Staten Island to Gainesville without stopping for gas. 
know, that's so. not an unusual trip between New York and Florida. Let's just say I, I know it well because yeah. I'm from Florida and we used to go up to New York. So there okay. you are. So you know. So so I get all the way to Gainesville. I arrive mid-afternoon on a weekday and I find the lab and I go up to the lab. Mm -hmm. And when I go up there, I find uh, Dr. Hyde and a couple of graduate students packing up all his stuff. From the, mo from the time I agreed to take be taken on as his graduate student. And there was a teaching assistantship associated with it so I could help pay my Yeah, tuition. a little uh, bit of money, sure. In that time, it was a few days, he accepted uh, a, a higher level of professorship at back at UC Davis and was packing up his stuff <laughs> And he and no one no one thought to no call one, me. No one told you. Well, you were already on your way. I don't know what it is. Yeah, they yeah, just so, didn't get a hold of you. They forgot so, you. I don't I know. Just drove, I just drove a thousand miles. I walk yeah. in and he's yeah. leaving. And 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 so he gave me a choice. I could either press on to Davis. Oh, across the country. Sure. Right. Be his graduate student out there, which you know that was fair. Or I could stay where I was. And Dr. Buss, Daryl Buss, would take me on. We would end up doing the same project because they were collaborating on this particular project, which was a collateralization of the canine myocardium. You know, okay, why? that's fair. And this was yeah. for which master's? What was that master's program called? It ended up as a, a well, I mean, it's a master of science. Science. In mm -hmm. Physiological sciences. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And this is mostly pre-computer. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a technique known as stereoscopy, where you would stare in a dark room through a glass with a grid superimposed on it and count how many capillary margins touched the lines in the grid. And from that- Oh you, boy. Yeah, and, and from that, a little calculus would lead you to the uh, volume of capillaries per unit volume of myocardium. And, and this was, was a two-year program that you counted well, it was a yeah. It, it, it technically it would have been two years anyway. Okay. So and you know there's a whole bunch of coursework with it. Sure. And uh, I it, you know it took me a while to finish it, but I did finish it because I mm -hmm. felt strongly at the time like I really wanted to go to veterinary school. And of course, the reason I took that program was because Florida had a brand new veterinary school. They did, yes, and that's exactly true. I I remember that. Mm -hmm. I think I was in, I ended up in the fourth class or fifth class. I I think the first class was. Yeah, well, whatever. I can't remember right now. But the point is, uh, I had this strategy. I would do the masters. I'd get to know some people, and I would eventually uh, earn my way into a place. True. And mm -hmm. it did kind of work out that way. But I didn't want to apply the first year because I had just gotten there, and I didn't want anyone to think I wasn't going to finish the masters. That mm -hmm. kind of, it's kind of a lesson my parents instilled in me: always finish what you start. And so, mm -hmm. anyway, so uh, I did that. I stayed with Dr. Bus. We did all my coursework. We started the research there. It involved electron microscopy and a bunch of other neat techniques that I got to learn. And then uh, on my second application, I got into UF College of Veterinary Medicine. Oh, so, okay. So the research, <laughs> the research was done, but the analysis and the thesis writing was not done. And that ended up on hold for almost the entire time of my uh, veterinary school career. Mm -hmm. And in the la in my junior year, when I had that semester, they were on a quarter system at the time. I ended up with a quarter off, and that's when I ended up completing that. I had to go back. I, went, I ended up back at, at well, I ended up at UC Davis for the winter of '82, 
working in Dallas Hyde's lab out there. And I oh, okay. There. So you did end up there with him again. Okay. Mm -hmm. did, yeah, it was, it was a neat time. Uh, he put me up in his house. He gave me a bicycle to ride around the Davis campus. It was, it was an interesting time, a really interesting time. And I spent a lot of my days in a closet counting capillaries for this mess. Oh, gosh, right. De but, you know, dedication. I, well, you know what? We really yeah. did have that dedication to get into veterinary school back then. The, the, you're right. There were, there were not a lot of vet schools. There were not mm -hmm. a lot of openings. And you, you literally had to do that. So for you to get right. an advanced degree and show that you were, you were committed, that's really what it took back then. Yeah, yeah. they saw that I wasn't going to quit, you know, and, and so I think that mattered. I, I got my, I was popular with the lab staff out in Davis because all day I'm in the closet. I had the AM radio on. Uh -huh. and I, had a, I had a phone and they were giving away lift tickets for skiing in the Sierra if you knew, you know, trivia and such. So I, I, all through the days, I would be calling up and eventually I'd get on. I must have won half a dozen or more pairs of lift tickets, which I gave out because sure. I had no skis with me and I had no time. But yeah, I gave yeah. them to all the staff. So I, I was popular uh, with them for that reason. Hey, lift tickets cost a lot back then too. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I came back from Gainesville. I mean, came back to Gainesville after that and started veterinary school in the fall of 82. Mm-hmm. With, I, I want to say it was, it might have been the sixth class. I, can't, I cannot recall. But anyway, uh, and, and since I had been a teaching assistant for the two, almost three years before helping out in the uh, freshman anatomy class, I ended up op getting sort of uh, opting out. I didn't have to retake. Oh, you're kidding anatomy. me. Anatomy no, at no. that time was my bane in vet school. Good oh, for you. Oh, it was you. my favorite too. I, I just uh -huh. loved it. So. Um, you know, I had, a, I, that was good. I used the time wisely because I needed the time to, to, you know, in, into the other classes. I mean, I don't know why, but it just kind of worked out that way. Anyway, so finished veterinary school. Um, and in the sub, in the years in between, my father had passed away. Oh. And so I, mm. I felt, uh, a strong need to come back to the Northeast, be relatively close to my mother and, uh, the rest of my family that was left at, by, at that time. So I moved to uh, the Northeast. I ended up in a rotating internship uh, at a place that uh, was called South Shore Veterinary Associates just outside of Boston. There were a bunch of boarded people there. And I lived in a, an apartment nearby in Quincy, Mass with a buddy of mine, a classmate from veterinary school. Uh, he's a theriogenologist now, Stephen Constant. And we roomed together for that whole year. He was at Angel Memorial. I was at South Shore. And, you know, we basically each were doing internships and we each, uh, you know, were busy. That's for sure. After that, I ended up in Rhode Island and then eventually in Connecticut. So when you uh, were finishing out with vet school, were you, um, were you dead set on getting an internship? Was that a natural progression for you to do an internship or was it... No, it's a good question. I, I was told um, by a few people that at the time, at least, and again, remember at that time, internships were very scarce. It wasn't like there was oh, yeah. hundreds like now. Maybe there was 60 or 75 positions around the country. It, it was some number that was that low. And uh, 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 I was told that uh, a single year in a, in a very busy rotating internship 
you know, competitively matched type program would be equivalent to three to five years in practice working for someone else, like an ordinary associate. True. And I was, I was, I was a guy in a hurry to, uh, to, 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 to be successful, I guess. You know, I, 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 as I told you, I came from a family that was of modest means, let's say, and uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I needed to show that I, I sort of fulfilled all our dreams, you know? So anyway, uh, so I, I figured, well, if I can get all that experience quickly, then I'll be more productive later and, and do better. Uh, and, and to some extent that was true. I mean, I spent one year and I did a, a bunch of different surgeries and most of my colleagues at that point you know, we're not that experienced. And I, and I had that experience. Well, sure. When you first get out, you know, you'll be perhaps relegated to the spay and neuters, but in your instance, when you did the internship, you said you had board certified veterinarians that were working alongside you. So you had uh, that uh, expertise that you could lean on. And that's what essentially promoted you along the, uh, the, with your abilities. Yeah, it did help a lot. I mean, you know, in a practice like that, they're not going to let you do complex surgeries. But unlike in veterinary school, where you're one of six or eight people jostling even to see, mm-hmm. I got oh, to yeah. scrub in, I got to hear the commentary. And, you know, it became the sort of watch one, do one, teach one phenomenon to some mm-hmm. extent where I knew I was capable of doing these things. I'd seen them enough times. So, so your job over in Rhode Island, was that your first clinical, regular clinical associate? Position. It was, it was, and, and I was given the freedom to do a lot of surgery there, and, and many of the procedures that I, you know, learned in my internship, I was able to do, you know, myself there. So. And I expect that was a, a bigger exposure to what it was like to run a small business. Uh, I didn't get a lot of the business experience there, but I, I got sort of human interaction experience. I think. Maybe it's because I was an only child. I don't know. I was a little bit slow on the uptake of, you know, how to manage clients. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I finally arrived now. But uh, you know, it, it's taken a lifetime to develop those skills. Oh, <laughs> let's just face it. As veterinarians, we get along so well with animals, and really, that's our forte. <laughs> you know, but but you know, you've got to, it's a people profession. You know, people Absolutely. told me that early on previous mentors sent me to Dale Carnegie classes and, you know, just all sorts of things. Oh, what an interesting thought. Okay. So you yeah. really did focus on, on learning yeah. about how to interact with people. That, that's an interesting, that, that's an interesting idea. And one that uh, you certainly could utilize no matter whether it was back then, of course, there was the Dale Carnegie or now, uh, what, it, whatever would be available in terms of interactions, I guess maybe, um, that you never can be, uh, you, you know, you never can be short on learning how to communicate more effectively is really well, what right. I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in, it's interesting how things come back around because right now uh, so many young people are seeking out and, and need uh, sort of leadership training, whether it's personal leadership or just leadership of others. You know, you hear, uh, you hear of the classes, you, if you look at the offerings at conferences, uh, and the sort of things that are being are focused on and the challenges that uh, the students face. You know, they, there's, a, there's this uh, thing now where uh, students uh, or not students, but young veterinarians are uh, distraught over the way clients treat them. And, and you know, I, I, uh, I, I would say I've had my fair share of difficult people, 
but you know, you, you, you learn over time how to set boundaries, what's appropriate. And, and I, I think, I think there's a need for that kind of training, right? Oh yes, absolutely. And um, I'm in a, a Facebook group that talks about uh, what happens when someone is faced in clinical medicine, when somebody is faced with a, a poor review on social media and how yeah. to answer those reviews. And, and it is very eye-opening. Uh, I think as veterinarians, we tend to take it extremely personally yeah. uh, when we see these reviews. And what I learned last year when I, <laughs> I did one year of intensive digital media marketing, really from the viewpoint of trying to learn how to, uh, how to operate in digital media. And, uh, and it, I was taught last year that the point really of social media remarks by clients is to give us information that we should take more as a constructive critique instead of a personal attack. And, and I have to admit that um, I, I, I really learned a lot from that viewpoint because I was one of those people who thought, oh my gosh, I'm scared of social media reviews. And instead, it's supposed to be a matter of us learning how to listen and then respond correctly to the client or customer and, and show that we are listening and we do want to make the appropriate changes. So from that point on, when you were uh, at, Rhode, at Rhode Island, what brought you to the next step in terms of it start, is that when you started your own business after that? Uh, not exactly. I mean, I knocked around for six or seven years. I managed an emergency clinic for a group in, in Greater Hartford. Uh, and then I started a house call practice. And I, I guess uh, for me, I was, because of what happened with my family, my father had passed away, my mother was widowed. I, I didn't, I, I couldn't really go home. It wasn't a place for that I wanted to be anymore. Mm -hmm, sure. At the same time, I couldn't go too, too far away because I needed to be near my family. So I sort of knocked around New England. My best friend, he, uh, he and his wife lived in New Hampshire. So I had just decided that I'd probably stay in the Northeast. At one point, I had eight, eight state licenses. I was, yeah, I was looking at your state licenses and I, and this is where I, I, I realized that you are you're still in clinical practice. And here I am mostly talking to veterinarians who are not in clinical practice as their main job. Now, don't get me wrong, as veterinarians, we are kind of crazy about being workaholics. How many of us have more than one job at right. any time? Right. And so, yeah, and we'll get into that with what you've done too. But still in all, um, so many licenses. How many do you have right now? Well, I just I, I have four state licenses now, and there's different reasons for it. I mean, I do practice in Connecticut, so I have that license, and occasionally I'll help out a friend of mine in Massachusetts, so I have that license. And then New York, I keep because that was my home state, and it was particularly hard to get at the right? time. Yes. New York, you may know this, they had a practical exam held at Cornell with some very um, challenging stations. Mm -hmm. You know, you uh, it was you went as far as to you know palpate uh, cows through a a special table where what was inside was blacked out. You put your hand in just as you would do if you were palpating a cow, and then they had actual uh, uteruses in there, and you were supposed to palpate follicles and this sort of thing, and then tell them the stage they were at, and then the 
examiner would ask you other questions and then you'd move on to the next station. They also had the notorious row of glass jars filled with various, you know, mineral mix, various feeds and that sort of thing. They wanted to screen out, uh, you know, the typical urban person who decided that that was not part of veterinary medicine. And sure. so I'm, I'm proud. In other words, yeah. in other words, what people don't really uh, understand about vet school is that we do learn about every species of animal. It is certainly a large animal and small animal. So in this case, they were making sure you understood your large animal stuff. Yeah, that's right. And, and while I and I came from you know an urban background, semi-urban, and uh, I was heading to small animal practice, I guess. But I actually did the best on the uh, dairy section for some reason i just had that memorized cold you could palpate yeah and when you learn how yeah when yeah. you learn how to palpate that 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 just translates well to your brain telling you what is going on there so yeah. when you did your house call practice did you do anything that was a large animal or small ruminants or anything like that i, I did do some uh, pig work there was a period of time where so-called pot-bellied pigs were very popular. Oh, the ones that are not supposed to be very big, but really ended up getting to be 500 pounds and they really weren't yeah. pot-bellied pigs. Right. Yes, they, well, I know. They, right, they were land race hogs that were just small at the time that people got them. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah, and I did quite a bit of that and there weren't too many people willing to do it. I don't know, it was unpopular. You know, people wouldn't bring them to the practice because they were too big. So. Yeah, I, I ended up developing a, a minor expertise in that area at, at, at that time. And it ended up being um, uh, prescient in a way because uh, that's the, a pig is what got me into organized veterinary medicine in the first place. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. Oh, that's know. great. Yeah, tell me because I see you have belonged to very many veterinary organizations. Over so the years, yeah. I, I do want to know how that happened and how organized veterinary medicine benefited you. Oh, I can talk at length about that. You'll have to stop me. But the uh, what happened was, so I had done house calls for a while and then I, and I realized I wanted to have my own clinic. I looked at clinics that were for sale and they weren't physically the, what I aspired to. I wanted something new and gleaming and it had oxygen at the cage side, which at the time was a novel concept, you know, things like that. I had my standards, you know, mm -hmm. whatever they were. Anyway, so I, I did a lot of relief work and I did, I did my house calls around here and then I would travel and use, I had all, as I said, I had all those licenses. I traveled New England uh, doing relief work uh, whenever I could for about mm -hmm. three years. Uh, I had one client, a veterinarian, who had some health issues, and she would go to Boston to a hospital to be treated, and I would fly out. I'd fly a small plane. I flew out to Martha's Vineyard, and I would live in this woman's house, take care of her practice and her animals, and then I would leave you know, on a given night, and she would come back. We never actually met physically for like 10 years, because wow. I, I would just come and go. It was a great gig for me. Sure. You know, I was single, I could do what I wanted. And, you know, uh -huh. she paid me well and, and I did what was asked of me. And so that was fun. But anyway, I saved up about $65,000, which at the time was a lot of money. And then I borrowed some more and I started this practice. And right around that time, about a year later, I got a call from a colleague who I knew a little bit because I had done relief work for him that he had gotten in a little trouble 
uh, with a client because a pig who had had general anesthesia didn't do very well. Mm. And it turned out a little tragically. And uh, he needed somebody who had a little experience in you know, that kind of swine medicine to look at the case and, and try to help explain it. Sure. So, so, and this is uh, the colleague was, was uh, the chair of the Connecticut VMA ethics committee at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I got all the information uh, and I analyzed it and I wrote a report uh, showing that, you know, actually the colleague had done what was necessary and that sometimes you get malresult regardless of your intent. And so that led to me being asked to be on the ethics committee. And then I ended up as chair of the ethics committee. And then we realized that the, the ethics committee was not named properly because it really was a client grievance committee. So I ended up changing the name to grievance committee and I ended up developing a relationship with the State Department of Public Health so that true allegations of malpractice I would send there and then things that were just upset clients or poor behavior, those kind of things, uh, I would handle those internally within CVMA. All the while I was on the board of CVMA, you know, in my county, which led to higher positions and eventually the presidency of Connecticut VMA. So at that point, where were you um, as far as how long you had been out in practice from graduation? Well, that pig incident, I believe, was in early 1998. So I had graduated about 12 years before. Okay, so that's interesting. So you found you had yeah. a little bit of free time at that juncture of your career. Uh, yeah. I see. I see that's about right for veterinarians. They they began begin to feel more comfortable where they're at in their career, and now begin to look outside. What else is there? So, yeah. and this it's was a volunteer me, position, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It took me about seven years of just working for others to realize I wanted to work for myself. And then another two years to figure out how to do it and save up the money. Sure. So, you know, I, I graduated in 86 and I founded this practice in 95. Mm -hmm. I, I All right, good on timeline. Where did yeah. a master's in public health come in? Well, that came in later uh, after a kind of a, a chain of events. And I actually made a note to help me explain it. So really what happened with organized veterinary medicine was just as I was becoming the president of the Connecticut BMA, mm -hmm. I, I got a letter from uh, a fire chief of a small city very close by here, West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, if you think about the, uh, what the year was, you know, that would have been around 2003. So just a short time after 9-11-01. And the state and many states were awash in federal homeland security money. And this fire chief had a second volunteer job also. He was the chairman of something called the Capital Region Emergency Planning Committee. Mm -hmm. And 41 towns, now let me explain, Connecticut's a home rule state. We don't have county government. We have 169 towns and two tribal nations. And the towns are grouped into areas that collaborate on certain things. Okay. Environment, environmental concerns, transportation concerns, and security concerns, and it's all voluntary. And when they get grant money, they can choose to pool it and do more with it. You know, there's a synergy to that. Sure. So anyway, so this fire chief, his name was Bill Austin, called me up, said, uh, are you the president of the Connecticut BMA? And I said, well, I will be in a month or so. He said, well, um, I've heard that you've been giving talks 
about disaster preparedness. And you may remember um, North Carolina pioneered this SART thing, the State Animal Response Team. Program. Actually, Before back in the mid mid nineties, I want to say maybe a, more like nineteen ninety three ish. Um, uh, I uh, was involved with that because of uh, Dr. Patty Bogue, uh, who oh, that, did that. Yeah, for California, she right. actually wrote a disaster handbook for veterinarians. Uh, there was because, a few states mm -hmm. who were, who independently developed these things: North right. Carolina, Florida, California. Uh, this was sort of going on, and and um, North there, there was a grant. So CBMA got a grant from North Carolina, and uh, a one person was going to be invited. Two people were going to be invited to go to a conference on disaster planning for animals. And in return, when the expenses were paid, but when you got back, you had to give a certain number of talks around oh, okay. your state, mm -hmm. engage sure. others. You know, I'm just remembering this now, and. Uh, so I, I volunteered, I thought it was an interesting thing. And, you know, I was savvy to the fact that veterinary medical associations are sometimes in competition with other kinds of organizations in the minds of the public for expertise about animals. You know, and particularly here in the Northeast, we find ourselves competing with humane organizations that sometimes have very different political priorities from the veterinary medical associations. Yes. So I wanted to grab on to this. So I became one of the volunteers and a colleague went with me and I came back and started giving my talks and I gave them at rotary clubs, at firehouses to firefighters, to different sorts of groups. Uh, and that's how this fire chief heard about me. Somebody heard me talk, said, Bill, this is somebody you're looking to, to meet. And so he wrote me, I ended up meeting with him. He, I, I went to his office. And I went up there and uh, he throws this giant loose leaf book on the desk. He says, turn to section 13. And section 13 at the time was emergency support function 13, animal protection, and the two ends of the folders were empty. And he okay. said, I, you know, he points his finger on the table. He says, it's, it's my duty to find a way to plan for evacuation of domestic animals when we evacuate our citizens will you and your organization help me do this? And so, you know, I, I kind of the hair stood up on the back of my neck because I was looking for a way for the Connecticut VMA to own a project like this. And it kind of became my thing during my presidency and in the many years since that's going back now, what did I say, 05 maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I started meeting with him. We, hi I, you know, I, I said, oh, well, what I said to him was, I said, yeah, we're willing, but my, you know, it's going to cost a significant amount of money and uh, we don't have it. We, we just don't have a way to raise it. And, and his answer was, don't worry about money. Just because of that money. Homeland Security yeah. funds that were coming up in that time period. Sure. You write me a plan and give me a budget and I'll get you whatever you need. So I went back and uh, I, you know, I talked to North Carolina SART. They helped me. You know, I don't know if you knew any of those people. No, I didn't. Time, but you know, I was uh, in California at the time, and um, yeah. and and we were looking at earthquakes. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, from you that know, viewpoint. You know, well, uh, uh, Jimmy Tickle was one of them. He's well-known people in the preparedness, uh, uh, public health practice preparedness area. Anyway, so I wrote the plan. I wrote the budget. I needed one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars to start, and. Uh, when I gave him the plan one week later, we had the money. That's so, incredible. What a legacy. 
to so be in on we, that for the North. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we ended up um, uh, having what was called a SART summit. We hired North Carolina people and they were advertising themselves as consultants on this because mm -hmm. they needed money too. So they came up and we held this giant meeting and you know, uh, veterinary associations of all kinds and animal oriented organizations and the State Department of Agriculture and Homeland Security and a variety of veterinarians from all different walks of practice life showed up. I, I'd say we had about a, maybe 150, 175 people there. It was held at the University of Connecticut Law School. They had a giant auditorium. And uh, that was the beginning of what became CTSART, the Connecticut State Animal Response Team. And so, you know, we broke it up. The, the state had decided, because we didn't have counties, to develop five preparedness regions. Right. So our capital region was 41 towns, and each region of the state, and it's a small state, admittedly, uh, formed their own uh, region. And then a state agency had a, uh, a coordinator designated for each of those, and, and the thing was, was the groups of towns were in varying degrees of cohesiveness. You know, my region, region three was very cohesive. Those 41 towns knew each other already. They'd been working together for years on a variety of things, including security. And it was, a, it was an easy transition. So I basically started just with region three, but I knew that if the Connecticut BMA was gonna get behind this, I couldn't just do it my region. I had to do all the regions so that everybody felt included. So I solicited, I, I, I identified other veterinarians, colleagues, some I knew, some I didn't, who were willing to be leaders in their respective regions. And it became the five of us. So at that point, one of the biggest challenges you must have had is you had to address not only the animal component, but how having animals involved would impact human public health. Is that correct? Is that how yeah. you got in well, that direction? That's exactly right. You know, it, I mean, at its essence, you know, the when you have people, when you're asking people to evacuate their homes, uh, the governor at the time uh, was Governor Rell, and she basically, she had seen images of Katrina and other disasters like it on television, and, and hysterical people being told to leave their animals behind get in the boat or get in the car and get going. And she said to us, she actually said it to me, I don't want to ever see images like that on Connecticut television. That's oh, what she wow. said. You know, politically, it was such a, you know, it was a, and, and we are a state that, you know, we're very, uh, there's a lot of interest in animal welfare in this state. Mm -hmm. It's an urban state. It's not, it's a Northeastern state, you know, all that goes along with that. Uh, people have, have a passion for animals. There's a lot of law here related to animal welfare. Every year there's legislation that strengthens uh, the way people are required to care about their animals. In any case, so, so that all kind of came together at that time. And we had, I had two problems. I had to basically lead the CVMA. I had to address region three on a, on a granular level. I had to help my four colleagues in the other regions figure out how to do their job uh, in their regions. And so region three got going early and we ended up using a component of the Citizen Corps program, which was CERT, Community Emergency Response Team, as the basis that the state therefore could say, well, these people are certified and we can deploy them. 
Connecticut has a Title 28. It covers uh, uh, workman's comp and it covers liability. So if a volunteer working in state mm -hmm. service got hurt or God forbid hurt someone else or their property, the state would indemnify them if they'd been through the training, received the ID card and were a formal part of the program. So it all got very uh, bureaucratic and burdensome in that way, but we, we saw it through. We became a deployable team. We ended up, so a lot of that $125,000 in my region went to buy equipment and trailers to transport it, which we still have. And, uh, and then future fundraising then became the next challenge. So we formed the Connecticut Veterinary Medical Foundation in which okay. the housing yeah, right. and I could, yeah, and I see that you, you yeah. that that led you to being the treasurer as uh, into somehow that that segued <laughs> eventually into being the AVMA and AVMF yeah. treasurer. But before well, we get there, I want to yeah. know how you got you, you decided a master's of public health was necessary. Well, I think what happened was I um, I was doing all these things in, in organized vet med. We passed legislation. Oh, I didn't even get into that. We passed a, a bill uh, which is now known as Public Act 0711. And we passed that in uh, 2007, which required the municipalities have wording in their municipal evacuation plans, how they were gonna handle, handle the animals. animals owned by people, particularly the pets. And see, so that created a necessary place for the Connecticut VMA CT SART program to function. And so we, we basically made, you know, help them understand that if the towns include this, then we're going to, then the law will be, be useful. The, the function will actually happen. You know, it all had to come together. You know, people had to recognize. Now, there were communities that you know, each community has its own emergency preparedness director, EMD they're called, or emergency management director. And not all were inclined to think this was a worthy thing, you know, the animal part. They were over, overwhelmed with people issues anyway, but we basically were able to convince pretty much everyone in the state that animal issues were people issues. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's actually a quote from Kevin Dennison who was, involved with uh, US, you work for USDA and, and, and NASA. But anyway, um, I guess we needed a place to raise funds from. So we ended up forming a foundation. CT SART became a program of the foundation instead of a program of CDMA itself. Uh, and then we started creating other programs and you could quibble over whether these are public health programs, but we had a domestic violence program that um, allowed people who had to evacuate their homes, so word evacuation, uh, a place to temporarily house their animals in an anonymous network of animal hospitals while yes. they found new housing to get away from an abusive spouse. Yeah, so I was, was part of that here in Oak Harbor when the domestic oh, violence shelter contacted me and asked if I would take in, I had a clinic at the time and I had oh. plenty of boarding. So yes, I, I, I did volunteer, voluntarily so do that, very so it's similar. important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We developed a list of, of practices that were willing to uh, accept animals, and then we developed a way. We had an executive director at the time who would actually meet uh, a staff from the clinic in, a, in an ambiguous parking lot somewhere, and the animals would be transferred. It was like a, I used to joke about it, call it a witness protection program for animals. But well, you know, people are people you know, don't want to leave their pets because they're afraid something will happen to their pets. 
Well, as uh, well, I, I had yeah. a staff member. I have a staff member who had, was was uh, unfortunately a party to it. This was actually her idea. This program, mm -hmm. Companions in Crisis, was her idea because she was afraid to leave an abusive partner sure. because the partner had threatened the animals. And uh, so yes, yeah. That's that was that's what led to that. Anyway, it helped flesh out the uh, it helped flesh out the the foundation's role, and then we got involved with other health professions in Connecticut. In Connecticut, when you um, if you are uh, having a problem with substance abuse, and the State Department of Public Health finds out about it uh, on their own, or there's a complaint by the public, you know you're going to lose your license, and it's right. a lot of really draconian consequences. Yeah. And but at the same time, that paradigm help uh, sort of uh, encourage people to not get help that they needed and not come forward. So mm -hmm. together with the dentists, the physicians, the nurses, and the PAs, mm -hmm. uh, assistants, we got together and formed something called HAVEN. It's the Health Intervention and Prevention Network. And basically, we got the state to agree that if a practitioner admitted they had a problem, had done no harm to a patient, and was willing to accept help, Mm -hmm. that they would not be disciplined and not lose their license. So this is and uh, so this is a state level of something that's fairly similar to what was the AVMA's diversion program. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. This it's a it's a nonprofit. It mm -hmm. works in concert with the Department of Public Health through a relationship of trust. And basically, you know, if if you have a problem with substance abuse or another kind of mental health issue. Uh, that's co potentially compromising your work. If you haven't heard a patient, that's the key. If you've already heard a patient, then yeah, the, yeah. Are, but here you were you're putting something together, which was an offering on a more local level than what AVMA, which is national, right, right. Um, had to offer. So this was uh, more of a dare I say grassroots way of reaching out to uh, Connecticut state citizens. Um, to support them in a, in a difficult time. That's right. And, and, you know, if you got involved with this program, you know, you had to admit that you had a problem, but then they would provide you services and mm -hmm. monitor you and you would still be able to practice. You it would not become public. There was no FOIA allowed. And you would, and, and if you could um, overcome the problem and not, you know, and, and there was no recidivism, you were absolved. You had no, Mm -hmm. you know, negative consequences to your license, your reputation, and that would, and I, I, one of the things that prompted me to get us involved in that uh, at the time was I had a colleague who had a substance abuse problem, and he ended up uh, killing himself, you know, oh, wow. using drugs, and I, I kind of never forgot this guy, I won't mention his name, but mm -hmm. I, I, I had a, I, I kept up a correspondence with his mother for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so this program, from my point of view, for the veterinarians, would spare future colleagues what this poor guy went through. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he left behind a wife, and it just was a bit of a tragedy. So Oh, absolutely. It, it was another mm -hmm. way of helping. And, yeah. and I feel that, you know, I, I take the veterinarian's oath kind of seriously, and I look at it and I say, you know, it's a duty I've accepted, and it gives me uh, a lot of self-esteem and pride when we can be something more it's not just about earning a living yeah i got to do that absolutely but mm -hmm. at the same time i mean i i know you came for school around the time i did and right it was conveyed to us that 
in return for the honor and privilege of being a veterinarian and earning a living in this way, uh, we owed something more to society and that we should seek out ways to to, to pay that back. And Well, you know, I think you're on to something there because right now, um, in listening to social media and in my role as a pet food safety uh, masters, <laughs> that's my master's of science in pet food, in, in food safety with the concentration on pet food. I listen to customers and clients uh, complaining endlessly about how veterinarians are bought and paid for and getting kickbacks from pet food companies that they don't trust veterinarians and so on and so forth. But then how do you how do you overcome that? Well, what I learned last year again in from social media, an under a deeper understanding of social media was what you have happened on to in your <laughs> from almost the beginning of your career, um, that if you are giving back to society, you can um, you can, gosh, I, it's not, I don't mean this to sound self-serving, so it's not at all that way, but you have uh, strengthened your reputation, I think, ultimately, right. in a well, way, but at right. the end, you are really giving, you are, you are embracing your role as being part of the community and taking that uh, to the level where you are giving back at an extraordinary degree. And, um, and again, I'm not necessarily tooting your horn either, although I, I feel like I want to do that. But on the other hand, it, this tells me a way that veterinarians can overcome what is now devolving of their reputation as a whole amongst uh, customers when it comes to, as again, pet food. So this, this sits in the back of my mind as a very important way uh, of giving us to um, to, to really maybe uh, reclaim our, um, our old reputations that we used to have where people looked at veterinarians and held them in esteem. And uh, am, I, am I saying that correctly, would you say? No, I, 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 that, that strikes a chord with me. I, I don't think we've lost our reputation, but I do hear you know, when I hear, I, I don't know how to characterize it. If I characterize it as complaining, I, I do not diminish the challenges, uh, that, the unique challenges that our younger cohorts have to undergo. I certainly didn't graduate with the kind of educational debt uh, that they had. I mean, of course, things were cheaper then, yes. Uh, no, no, I, no, you're right. The, 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 no. This whole thing about going to college right now is exponentially high. Yes. <laughs> and I have much. my opinions and my theories about that. But mm -hmm. the main thing is, is I, I don't diminish these challenges. And I hear, you know, I, I, I don't follow social media closely intentionally. So, but, you know, I know that there's uh, a lot of stress because clients are abusive. I'm hearing, uh, of course, clients have always been abusive because human beings can be that way. Uh, and I know they have debt that's 20 and 30 times more than I had. I think I graduated with $20,000 in debt, which mm -hmm. at that time for me- not very, Yeah, that's not considered very much. Yeah. No, not now, but- Not now. For me, Back it then was, it was like, wait, my ha over half my paycheck is going to pay my student loan. Yeah, and the pay was <laughs> yeah. a lot lower for us and we accepted that and that's how it was. And I don't think it's bad that now we're compensated, of course, that we're compensated as we as we should be. But I, I think that the conversations about the challenges that we face should stick within our profession. 
I think our public face really needs to be what it always has been is that we're, we're, we're competent, we're professional, we're altruistic, we're service oriented. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a public message. You know, it's like, you know, do you always want to air your dirty laundry in public? Well, I'm thinking probably not. I think the conversations about our shortcomings, you know, should be had. Mm-hmm. Wellness, uh, whether we have adequate diversity, whatever these challenges, the debt, these challenges have to be addressed. But I don't think they should be addressed publicly because outside of our profession, they're not going to understand. And we don't want to, you know, that if you read the veterinarian's oath, at least as it's written currently, and I know there's talk about changing it, uh, but as it's written currently, there's not a word about our own self-interest or ourselves. It's all about uh, taking, you know, using our skills and our knowledge to serve society and to take care of others, mm-hmm. public health, animal health, all of that, you know what it says. And I think that's the public image we want to convey. We don't want oh, to- Oh, absolutely. Give- and that is truly who we are. I, I, I- right. I can't think of a veterinarian I've, I've ever met that was self-serving. And I think right. it, it crushes uh, a lot of us as veterinarians when we're accused that way. So that said, um, uh, you, you mentioned public health. And um, I know that a lot of the veterinary colleges are starting to uh, offer a dual yes. degree. And the dual degree is uh, the DVM, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, typically with Uh, masters of public health. Some of them are offering a masters of science in food safety. Uh, I personally went to school much, much later in life is just actually the past several years in in getting my master's of science in food safety because I I love food safety as I learned from the military. Um, That said, um, here you were interacting and, and working at this level of uh, in, in your state government, so to speak, with, um, with these different programs that you, you founded. And, and somehow that, that really resonated with you to get that master's of public health and ultimately led you to our organization. So right. where did you get your master's of public health and how did you do it? Yeah, I... I... Uh, went through the what was called what is called the executive program in public health practice at the University of Minnesota. Oh, okay. Was it online? Uh, some of it was. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did a fair amount of coursework online, and then as a required component of the program, you went to the campus in residence for a certain number of weeks or months per summer. Over a, uh, you had you had a certain window you had to do it. I went out to uh, uh, Minneapolis St. Paul three times, three summers in a row. I think I did two weeks, two weeks, and one week. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, you were in class uh, all day with a cohort because you went through in a cohort of 35. Right. Or so mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kathy Jorgensen, if you know her, she was in my, uh, she was in my cohort. And, and Jody Sheftel, I know you know her. Yes, Jody. Yeah, she just she, received she um, the, uh, our award that we give out annually. Right. Mm-hmm. She was not in my cohort, but she was involved in organizing uh, some of the classes and some of the other aspects. I can't recall every detail. Um, uh, so what happened was uh, I was running these programs or, or collaborating with others on them. And I got asked to help start uh, an organization that brought together the, the, the state animal response team programs across the country. Uh, they were just looking for someone who had, I guess, some leadership experience and so that, be, that organization became the National Alliance of State 
Animal and Agricultural Emergency Programs, NASEP. And uh, you've heard this, NASEP, have you heard of it? Not it's, at all, no. Uh -uh. It's, uh, it still exists. Uh, uh, integral to it was Kevin Dennison. I mentioned his name earlier, earlier and another woman named Jeannie Lynn. They were USDA employees who um, had this idea that we we had to be we had to coordinate nationally to um, uh, support each other. Mm -hmm. so that was the idea. One because some states had, would have an emergency at one time, and others there was this whole concept of mutual aid. And mm -hmm. you know, meanwhile, I've been taking classes. I've I've gone to uh, Cedar Rapids, and I took a, an agricultural terrorism program. Oh, those are interesting. I yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it was called Ag Terror, and then I went. I spent mm -hmm. a couple of weeks in Anniston, Alabama, at the Center for Domestic Preparedness. They had another type of disaster preparedness program. So I had been sort of building up this portfolio of skills or expertise that you know was all related to this whole thing of response to disasters and. Uh, terrorism incidents and just basically supporting uh, animals in a time of disaster. And then I got involved in NASEP and I kind of realized that maybe after practice or simultaneous with practice, it would be possible for me to develop a new career, one that wasn't just volunteer, but I felt that in order to do that effectively, I needed a credential. And so I looked at a few different ways of going about this uh, there were some Homeland Security degrees that were offered, including one through uh, some of the military academies. They had a bunch of different uh, programs. I think there's one called the Naval Special Warfare Academy. They had a bunch of different, but I realized that within veterinary medicine, the, the Masters of Public Health degree was an understood and respected degree, mm -hmm. one that would track you into certain positions if you wanted to be a state veterinarian or a state public health veterinarian or you know just a, a local public health there was a lot of options with that whereas all that the other kinds of degrees they were more oriented towards uh, law enforcement mm -hmm. and military type things and since i don't have that background it, it just made more sense so i started looking at mph programs and iowa state had one and minnesota had one and I think the timing worked out uh, for the one for me in Minnesota. I ran into Will Houston. Do you know him, Will Houston? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. He's an academic, uh, was at Minnesota, and he was integral to this program. I ran into him at a conference, and I just asked him about it. I said, is there a place for a guy like me, because I was already in my 50s, uh, in, in your program, you know, do you think... Uh, I'd be capable of, of being successful in it. You know, I was a little insecure about it and he encouraged me. So I, I started the program, you know, I applied and they accepted and, and I had a plan and uh, you had to have like a, a, a project for it. And so all of this that we're talking about really became my master's project. Your ma I, I figured as much. That's a good yeah. way to, to, yeah. to accomplish it. You get it done. You have the program. Um, yeah. said, setting milestones that you had to reach. And, yep. and I pretty much did the same thing with mine for my project as well. Yeah. And that actually developed into my uh, pet food vet uh, channel. So yeah, I, I, I well uh, understand how that parallels mm -hmm. in our careers, I think. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I started the program, I want to say in late 07, and I got the degree in 11. Uh, it didn't take me the whole four years, but my, my wife will remember, I spent a lot of evenings during the week studying 
our daughter had gone off to college, so I used her room as a study center and I took all the classes, you know, you went through statistics and public health communication, and mm-hmm. just all, all of, you know, food safety, you know, plenty, a couple of courses in HACCP and that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I tell you, I really enjoyed my master's. I, yeah, I had the most fun in those classes. I surprised myself. I, I had not done all that great in epidemiology and toxicology in vet school, but uh, 30 years later, <laughs> well, you're, you're I did really great in my master's program for those two subjects, so much so that, um, my gosh, I, I was seriously looking at getting, getting into the, uh, the, the board certified program for toxicology, but then, uh, I don't know, some, some kind of like, you know, the sanity prevailed. <laughs> Yeah. I thought, oh, that's going to take five years. What are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, um, I gave serious thought to following uh, my colleagues uh, into the preventive medicine college. Oh, and sure. Yeah. Well, you'll find that. that is just a year of study, my friend. And then you get to take that board certification test. And I'm yeah. positive you would do great with it. And um, that's far more achievable than my completely insane idea <laughs> about well, I, getting boarded. I, I ended up abandoning it. Just um, uh-huh. I, I just didn't have the capacity, the bandwidth at that point. Oh, sure. To go further. And I, I don't know if I would have succeeded at it or not, but I had always aspired to be board certified somehow, and that was a way to do it. But I, I, I'd taken it as far as I think I could mm-hmm. in my mid fifties with kids in school and just you know busy life. But so. remember, veterinarians, we we are we get bored easily. We have to have yeah. two or three or four things to do at any one time. And yeah. dare I say, we're very usually usually we're blessed with very good health. And, and that uh, gives us quite the capacity to push ourselves. <laughs> so, uh, so that said, um, as I, as I um, wanted to really ask you, as we, we start to wind down over the next um, several minutes or so, um, I wanted to ask you, um, what brought you into uh, your involvement with, with uh, as a clinical veterinarian? After all, you, there you are still, still running your your practice and obviously happy and satisfied with with that uh and you now you have your master's in public health and then you like why join the american association of food safety and public health veterinarians why why are you drawn to that no that's simple it's an easy answer i you know i i've invested a significant amount of time and energy and and love if you will into developing this expertise and I want to be associated with others who have that same expertise. I don't want to lose what I've learned and what I've gained. And so I don't, I don't know where it's going to take me. Uh, and, and because I'm getting close to getting out of practice entirely. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, absolutely. I, you, yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking at, at it and, and I probably should be looking at it a little harder, but I'm sure I'll have a post-practice career and it's probably going to veer off into something associated with public health because it's not something that requires necessarily, you know, manual dexterity right. or, the, or interaction with individual clients. You know, I may, I just don't want to lose touch. I, I spent a lot of energy to, to get this and there's actually a lot more to it. Um, but that said, I just don't want to lose touch. So by being- Well, you see that one of the things that we, uh, benefits is really um, the networking 
you know, and and um, now that I am um, completely enmeshed in in revising our our website, and um, and that's going to be uh, set up under a company that has a membership uh, association uh, membership software as well. Oh. So now we could really serve our our membership. And uh, so you're, you'll, you should see this come to fruition in June. And, okay. um, and I'm going to be devoting the next couple of months to, to making it happen. So anybody looking at our website right now, it's served our purpose over the past, uh, I guess, 10 years. And we're going to take it now to the next level. And people will find that we will have a job board set up. We will have uh, the ability for for individuals like yourself, as an example, to uh, to submit blog posts uh, that they can also submit white papers, as an example, uh, a white paper on uh, veterinary public health, veterinarians and food safety. So there's an opportunity for reputation building where people can get their their name out there for their particular expertise. And they don't have to think to themselves, oh, I've got to, how do I submit an article to a journal and, and, and so on? That, that's not at all the case. You'll be able to submit to our website and, and have your, your article come out for, for folks to see. And hmm. so we, we are building very much it with an idea towards being uh, uh, available as a resource to veterinarians in clinical medicine. And, and we want to be able to say, hey, if you have a situation come up in day-to-day -day clinical practice, we are here. You could reach out to us uh, and, and get some type of answers. So in the past, I think we would you know, be able to potentially reach out to uh, perhaps other um, other areas like uh, at one point AVMA had um, a, a message board, a discussion board set up called NOAA and, oh, and things of that nature. Um, but with our particular website as it, it's coming up and will be available hopefully before the end of June, uh, clinical practitioners will be able to reach out to us. You don't have to be a member uh, of our organization but still, we will have a, a public directory. It will talk about you know, the, the individuals in our organization who will be available for consultations and people will be able to reach out to them. And a lot of our, our, our availability, even posting to us in general saying, hey, I wanna contact somebody in your organization. You send us um, your email and we will find answers for you and people to answer that for you. Now, on the other hand, if you do wanna join us, we're, <laughs> we might be the cheapest organization as far as dues, Would, wouldn't you say? Pretty I think we're, yeah, we're right at about $42. I suspect right. we're gonna stay under $50. Yeah. And, um, and we do have the ability uh, to network we do have a job board that is going to be coming up and will be valuable to people as well. And um, there will be different types of jobs that you don't see. Um, if you go to the AVMA, this is my go-to place. I go, if I'm looking for jobs, I typically go right to the AVMA 
job search and I'll, you know, stay on there for a bit and go through all their different types of uh, filters and so forth. But the types of jobs that we have posted are ones that typically will not be on AVMA. I don't know why it just works that way. Um, Because I've seen them come across on our e-list, which is a really low tech way of putting out job stuff, but it's more of a thing where me- our members, uh, there's a few hundred of us will say, hey, there's this job coming up available. Uh, I wanna put it out there because uh, you know I feel that anybody in this organization would be qualified to, to try out for it. Yeah. So wouldn't you say that things you've seen across, come across on our e-list were useful, especially our newsletter? Yeah, absolutely. The newsletter are very useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, and I think uh, aspirationally, the, the broader we reach out over time, I mean, if we can reach a thousand members at some point in the future, that starts to look like we could be a member of the House of Delegates. Oh, we actually are. Oh, we are. Okay. Yes, okay. yes, oh, surprisingly. Are, and the reason that happened was yeah. because we were originally the, uh, the, uh, the, the merger. Two, two separate associations. Right. Food safety and the public health. That's right. I forgot, you know. I oh, yeah. Was- yeah. And see, this is where um, we ended up combining because the membership was falling off. And we yeah. have to have a certain amount of AVMA members uh, who are uh, also members of AVMA as right. well as members of our association. So we have, um, we have delegates certainly, but um, I'm telling you that, um, that because we, we do have this um, uh, ability to interact with AVMA, we, we ultimately are also affecting legislature. And so that is where, again, you could make a difference. If you are if you are involved with our association, and right. you did mention um, leadership in veterinary medicine, our organization has the ability to get involved uh, at um, in these different roles and learn about how to be a leader in veterinary medicine without you know without getting lost in a big gigantic organization. Right. So, um, you know, we're, we're small but mighty. And, and actually, I do intend um, and hope that we keep growing. And I do want to invite clinical veterinarians like yourself to join us and see where you can go at the next, next incarnation of your career, because that's what I hear you telling me. You're saying, no, okay, right. I think I'm at that critical junction. You know, I've kind of set myself up. You know, right. what's next? hey, you know, I have so many options now, right? And yeah. so that's what I want to impart to clinical veterinarians. We're here for you on a very many levels. That's right. And I, um, I penned a few notes, uh, you know, potential closing messages uh, before we began. And mm-hmm. one of them is that, you know, one shouldn't abandon areas of the profession that maybe you're not presently interested in. You should try to hang on to that flexibility that veterinary medicine offers. It's never too late uh, to shift your focus and add a new experience, certainly I did. And and the other thing is, is you never know what opportunities are gonna arise from networking with others in other parts of the profession. And and all those opportunities are chances to perhaps educate oneself in another area of the profession. And that may come back to you someday in the future that you cannot envision now. So Mm -hmm. I, I I would hold on to all those experiences and opportunities. And I think, 
I, you know, with all these uh, MPH programs out there, I get the sense there's a lot more young people deciding to grab that degree now, even if they're not going to use it right away and, and sort of have it in their pocket um, to use uh, in their career uh, sometime later on. You know, it's certainly more so than when we were graduating. So I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I think that's a very good thing. Yeah, in other words, it's never too late to plan for various incarnations of your career. And that if you are in, involved in something or interested in something, embrace it and, and don't let it go. So right. uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm inspired. I like, like you, I was in clinical practice or you are in clinical practice for a very long time in my career. I only went into the military uh, 12, 14 years ago and got out just two years ago. And uh, I, I have to tell you, I didn't really come to public health or food safety in veterinary medicine until relatively recently in comparison. But I, uh, I am just inspired when I see folks such as yourself who are in clinical veterinary medicine, and they're seeing the value in exploring these other areas of food safety and public health. So thank you for, for reaching out. I, I know when we began and we, and we talked just briefly before we started um, the, the recording on our session now, you, you had said, hey, you know, I don't know if my, my life would be of interest for, for, for this particular channel. And um, no, you, you, actually, you actually are exactly the, the veterinarians that I am trying to appeal to right now and tell all of you uh, as clinicians, um, the, they're, you're working every day with public health. And you, you have us to rely on as an association that we will support your efforts if you ever have questions. And then likewise in the future, if you're looking at, at, uh, at some point stepping away from clinical me medicine primarily, and then going more in depth into public health or food safety, then we're the people to help you achieve those career goals. So again, I wanna thank you for spending a really in-depth time. And I have to tell you uh, that I am particularly uh, excited that we were able to talk more in depth and even at, dare I say, an esoteric level about what it means to be a veterinarian. And I think that people will find this of value. And I hope that folks will stay for this entire podcast because even though it took, you know, little over an hour it ha it's been chock full of interesting stuff so tell you what i look forward to talking to you again and thank you again before i close do you have any final words you want to impart to particularly the clinical veterinarians out there or any of us well thanks don i guess i'll just say it's uh, we're so fortunate and i have personally nothing but gratitude to be a member of really the greatest profession and since you're a veteran i'll I'll, I'll invoke a quote from uh, uh, a famous uh, a naval aviator named uh, Jimmy Doolittle. He was a very prominent hero of World War II, and his, his memoir is entitled, I Could Never Be So Lucky Again. And I, and I think that's how I feel about my profession. I could never be so lucky again. And, and all of us feel the same way too. So again, folks, this is the ninth episode of our first season. And... Uh, I believe that every single veterinarian I've talked to so far 
has been grateful that we've been in the veterinary profession. So thank you again and goodbye for now. Thank you. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast now and be sure to share with all of your veterinary friends.